For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war. I me, I see the ruin of my house. The tiger now hath seized the gentle hind. Insulting tyranny begins to jut upon the innocent and aweless throne. What is a man? Sure he made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. O oh, my dear father, restoration hang thy medicine on my lips, and let this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in thy reverence made. I am a king that find thee, and I know, tis not the balm, the scepter and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the throne he sits on, nor the pomp that beats on the high shore of the world. This is the mighty history of the British Empire, a people living on a tiny island in the North Atlantic Ocean, built an empire that circled the earth and brought freedom and education to languishing millions. This empire was blessed by Almighty God and one of his best educated teachers, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare has educated some of the greatest leaders of all time, such as Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. We shall never surrender. Our troubled world needs a fresh crew of nation-building leaders. Are you ready to step up to the challenge? Welcome to the exciting classroom of Shakespeare's royal education with host Dennis Leap. Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Shakespeare's Royal Education. Now, I have no comments today, but that doesn't upset me. So uh, just remember, if you have a comment about today's podcast, don't hesitate to join in on the conversation. Now, on our last program, which aired on June 28th, we discussed the tremendous loyalty of Kent and why Shakespeare wrote him in as a character in the play. So he really is an interesting character. Now he's going to, uh, as we go through this uh, this play, uh, we're almost done with it. He'll show up again uh, several times. And the, the ending of the play has him in there as a key figure. And it's just amazing what's going to happen with him. So I'll just maybe pique your interest and keep reading out there. Now, for today's program, what I want to do is I want to focus on the disloyalty of Lear's lying daughters. Here, Kent is totally loyal. His own daughters were not. So we're going to focus most of our attention on Act 2 today. But before we get into that, I thought maybe I ought to just uh, remind everyone a little bit about Goneril and Reagan and uh, Lear's love test with them. And uh, obviously Cordelia was in there as well. So let's just go back to Act 1, Scene 1, and Page 5. And, uh, you know, this is, the, uh, this is the big fake test that uh, Lear did with his daughters to see how he could, you know, divide up the kingdom. But there was no need for the love test because he had already divided the kingdom. <laughs> it was already done. And uh, you don't want to say that this is a lot like you know, our uh, president, but it is, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, in some ways, there was a fake king, you know, at, at the same time, but uh, that's my opinion. So, uh, uh, anyway, uh, so in Act 1, Scene 1, 
this is the time of of uh, Lear's love test, and uh, the, he wants his daughters to tell them how much he loves them, and then he's going to divide up the kingdom. But like I said, he already had divided it up anyway. So, so let's just look through some of this. So he says, this is on page five. This is the very top of the page. He says, and, uh, and here are to be answered. Tell me, my daughters, since now we will divest us both of rule, interest of territory, and cares of state, which of you shall say doth love us most, that we our largest bounty may extend, where nature doth with merit challenge? Goneril, our eldest born, speak first. And so again, this is all a big ruse. He planned to give the biggest one to Cordelia anyway. And, uh, so, uh, so, but even the, the, the other sisters know what's going on. But here's what Goneril says to him. Sir, I love you more than word can wield the matter. Dearer than eyesight, space and liberty beyond what can be valued rich or rare. No less than life with grace, health, beauty, honor, as much as child ever loved or father found. A love that makes breath poor and speech unable beyond all manner of so much. I love you. And now Cordelia is aside in the play. <laughs> She's like rolling her eyeballs saying, oh, come on. You know, this is ridiculous. And then Cordelia says, What shall Cordelia do? Love and be silent. So she's saying, oh man, I'm not going to lie to my father. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So then then uh, Lear then explains all these bounds, all these champlains. This is where you're going to be. And uh, he said, this is going to be perpetual. And uh, then he goes on to say, now what says our second daughter, our dearest Reagan, wife of Cornwall? Now, uh, I, maybe he didn't mention it, but Goneril is married to Albany. And so he's the Duke of Albany. And then a Reagan, you know, of course, she has to be better than her sister. And uh, she says, I am made of that self-metal as my sister. <laughs> so she says, she's not going to come up with anything new. She says, well, I'm just like my sister, you know. And prize me at her worth. In my true heart, I find she names my very deed of love. Only she comes too short that I profess myself an enemy to all other joys. So in other words, the only joy she really has in her life is her love for her father. That's not true. It's a lie. He says, which the most precious square of sense possesses, and find I am alone felicitate in your dear highness love. And Cordelia is about ready to vomit on the side. Again, she's aside. And then she says, Then poor Cordelia, and yet not so, since, I am sure, my love's more richer than my tongue. <laughs> she says, I don't have to say anything. I know I love my father. And she says, I'm not even going to get into what they're getting into. So, so uh, anyway, I think everybody remembers this this part of the the play that uh, you know Cordelia won't play play his game, and then he goes to the third daughter and he says, "So, what do you think?" And she says, "Nothing, my lord." <laughs> she says, "I'm not saying nothing." And he says, "Nothing," and then Lear says a famous line. It's 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 famous. It, we hear it everywhere. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again, and she says, "No, I'm not going to do it." So that's how that's how the play, you know, opens up, and uh, here Lear's truly loving daughter, she wouldn't play his game, and as a result, Lear banished her from the kingdom. But on the very positive note, she becomes the queen of France. <laughs> so she didn't really lose anything; she gained a husband and gained all of France. So anyway, 
I, I think that's interesting to go back to as we get into now into into Act Two. So uh, again, just remember that. Remember their statements that, that uh, you know how they would just love their father so much. So let's go now to Act Two on page thirty-eight, and uh, we'll get into to some more things here um, that will help us see where this really went and where it, where it was uh, where it ended up. So here we are now. We're in uh, on Act Two. We're uh, in page 38, and it says, uh, uh, essentially there in scene one, what it opens up with, it opens up with Edmund, who, if you remember, is the illegitimate son, and uh, uh, he's also uh, really wants, what he wants is he wants his father's estate. He wants to kick his brother out, and so he's not he's not a loyal son at all. And this is kind of the, the double whammy to this play is you've got Lear's family is broken down, Gloucester's family is breaking down. And uh, uh here's here's Edmund. He gets he comes back home and what he does is he runs immediately into to Gloucester's oldest uh, or maybe I shouldn't say oldest, maybe it's Gloucester's uh most loyal uh servant. This is how the scene opens. They're they're back at uh, Edmund is back at his own his father's estate. Uh, Edmund is the illegitimate son. He approaches uh, Gloucester's faithful servant, and here's what he says. Line 1, page 38, act 2, scene 1, line 1. He says, save thee, Curran. And, uh, uh, you know, at, at first sight, when you read that, so what does he mean, save thee, Curran? And uh, if you, this is where you really have to dig in to to Shakespeare, and you have to, you know, if you have your own computer access and internet, you have to go online and say, what does this mean? And you have to ask, well, what does it mean in, in English? And, and and essentially, if, if you look at this, this greeting is really a shortened version of a greeting which, which actually means God save thee. But he doesn't say it. He doesn't say God save thee. He just says save thee. And and I think what it, this I think what Shakespeare is really doing there. Now I haven't talked to Shakespeare about this, so so this is my own thinking here. But but uh, he doesn't really look at the servant, you know, like with with real honor. He doesn't say God save you. And and in some ways, if you look at this expression, the way if if you look you know online and you really go to a good encyclopedia or dictionary, it says this expression leaves the word God out making it a casual greeting like, good day. And it said it could also mean, and this is this is my thinking, it could also mean that Edmund just holds no respect for his father's servant. He said, eh, save thee. I could care less, you know. So, um, but this scene is really crucial, though, everybody out there reading it. You have to really pay attention to it. And essentially what happens then is, 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 uh, Curran is actually more respectful of the of the illegitimate son, and he just he just comes back and says, "And you, sir," and only I think he's meaning, "And God save you," but he doesn't necessarily say it that way. And he says, "I have been with your father and given him notice that the Duke of Cornwall and Regan his Duchess will be here with him this night." And so, so essentially, Curran feels like he's got to tell the illegitimate son, "Look." Cornwall and uh, and Reagan are coming tonight, but if you know the whole story, he's having an affair with Reagan anyway. He knows that she's coming, 
and he knows that Cornwall's coming. And uh, uh, Edmund says, how comes that? And so he's, he's playing along here. And Curran says, nay, I know not, but you have heard of the news abroad. I mean, the whispered ones, for they are yet but ear-kissing arguments. And so, so in other words, that phrase, ear-kissing arguments, we would call gossip. <laughs> it's just gossip. And he said, hey, I'm glad you're back. Here's the big news. Here's, here's, here's probably why they're coming. And it's not at all why they're coming. But uh, uh, he, he says, well, then Edmund says, no, I pray you, what, what are they? In other words, what, what, what are these big uh, gossips going around? He says, have you heard of no likely wars toward Twixt, the Duke of Cornwall and Albany? And so, so obviously he knows about this. <laughs> but the point is, war is brewing. You know, so, so war is brewing in Lear's family. He has this big love test, gives all the property away, says he's tired of being king. He wants to just go party with a hundred knights everywhere he wants to. And the nation is breaking down and it's, it's, it's really falling apart fast. And, uh, and, uh, he said, well, Curran says, well, haven't you heard all this? And, and of course, Edmund is lying. He says, not a word, not a word. I haven't heard anything. Then Curran says, you may do then in time. Fare you well, sir. And uh, uh, so so here Curran is thinking, hey, this is cool. Yeah, we had a good exchange. Well, no, you know, he'll figure it out. But then notice uh, what Edmund does. And it's really what Shakespeare is doing is he's giving us insight into, uh, you know, of course, you know, Edmund is not a living character, but he's giving us insight into the evil and the, the immorality of this character. And uh, he competes almost for evil with Iago from uh, his play Othello. And Iago is just absolutely the devil incarnate. And, uh, you know, Curran, I mean, not Curran, Edmund is not that far behind. <laughs> so, so, but so, so now Edmund is talking out loud, but he's thinking to himself, says the Duke be here tonight, the better best. This weaves itself perforce into my business. My father has said guard to take my brother. And I have one thing of a queasy question which I must act. Briefness and fortune work. Brother, a word. Descend. Brother, I say. And so, so essentially what he's done is he's had his brother hide at the estate. And so he's in hiding. And he says, okay, now, brother. Uh, uh, he goes to him and he says, okay, come on down. All right, come out of your hiding place. We got to talk. And and uh, he goes on to say, um, he, he, well, he says, a brother, a word to send, brother, I say. And so then Edgar now comes on the scene. And this is what Edmund says to him. He says, my father watches. Oh, sir, fly this place. Intelligence is given where you are hid. You have now the good advantage of the night. Have you not spoken against the Duke of Cornwall? He's coming hither now in the night, in the haste, and Regan with him. Have you nothing said upon his party against the Duke of Albany? Advise yourself. And he says, I am sure on it. I have, I'm not a word. He's, he's not involved in any of this. He's been hiding. He doesn't know what's going on. And uh, he's blaming him. He said, yeah, well, the reason why they're coming here is because they want to talk to you, you know because he's been spreading rumors about them. And he's no, I haven't. I haven't been doing that. And Edmund says, I hear my father coming. Pardon me. In cunning, I must draw my sword upon you. Draw, seem to defend yourself. Now quit you well. 
Yield, come before my father, light, ho, here, fly, brother, torches, torches, so farewell. So he, he brings his brother down. He says, okay, here comes your dad. He wants to kill you. You know, uh, he said, so you better get out of here. You better flee. And so, uh, 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 you know, the, the, there's torches. Everybody's coming. And then uh, uh, what what he's trying to do, he's trying to make up this this plan right away to get his father hooked in what he's thinking. And he just says to himself, oh, well, you know, some blood drawn in me would be good opinion of my fierce endeavor. He says, oh, I can hide what I'm doing. I am going to pretend that my brother was out to kill me. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to knife my arm. And then I'm going to be bleeding, and I can just rope my father, you know, into this. So he, he stabs his arm, and he says out loud to the crowd, you know, to the audience, he says, I've seen drunkards do more than this in sport. <laughs> and he says, Father, Father, stop, no help. So his, his father shows up, and he's got torches and the servants. And he says, now, Edmund, where's the villain? So, so Edmund says, here stood he in the dark, his sharp sword out, mumbling of wicked charms, conjuring the moons to stand auspicious mistress. So, so now there's a lot more to that than you think. And so, so, uh, he's, he's, he's actually making mockery of his father. Because remember, his father at the very beginning, remember he saw everything is, oh, all this horrible thing is happening in England and, and, you know, the moon and the stars and everything is against us, you know, the whole universe, the gods. And so now he's talking like his father does, <laughs> you know. And, uh, he, he says he stood here in the dark. He was doing this. He was conjuring the moon, you know. And then Gloucester is getting frustrated. He said, but where is he? He says, look, sir, I bleed. You know, he's still trying to keep the attention on him, not on the brother. And he says, where is the villain, Edmund? And he said, fled this way, sir, when by no means he could. Now, again, that's, that's, a, that's a pregnant statement there. And, uh, uh, you know, saying, look, he fled this way, sir, because he's up to something. And what, what do you, and he's going, what do you mean he's up to something? And uh, then Glosser tells his servants, go after, you know, pursue him, get him. And then uh, he, he goes on to say, but, but no means what? He, you know, we don't know where he went. And then he looks at Edmund, and he's saying that, by no means what? What's, what's going on? And Edmund says to him, well, persuade me to the murder of your lordship. And he's telling his dad, well, well the reason we had this fight is he wanted me to murder you. And, and, uh, you know, his dad is going, what? Murder me? And he says, but that I told him, so he's telling him, but I told him that the revenging gods against parricides, and, and he said that all the thunder bends, spoke with how manifold strong a bond, uh, the child was bound to the father, sir and fine, seeing how loathly opposite I stood to his unnatural purpose, in fell motion with his prepared sword, he charges home, and my unprovided body latched mine arm, and when he saw my best alarm spirits, bold in the quarrel's fight, roused to the encounter, or whether gasped by the noise I made, full suddenly he fled. <laughs> and so he said, yeah, thank you had to be thankful, Dad. He's gone because I scared him off. You're not going to be, be executed. 
And then Gloucester says to him, he says, let him fly far. Not in this land shall he remain uncaught and found dispatched. The noble duke, Mrs. Cornwall, my master, my worthy arch and patron comes tonight. By his authority, I will proclaim it, that he which finds him shall deserve our thanks, bringing the murderous coward to the stake, he that conceals him death. So, so essentially, if, if you really get online and maybe study some spark notes and things, what you're, what we're really seeing here is, is essentially Gloucester has now banished his best son from England. And he said, look, I'm going to get the Duke's approval. We're going to put a, you know, a, a hit on him and, uh, he, we're either going to kill him or he has to go. He's going to be gone. And so, so of course, that's what Edmund wants. He wants his brother gone because he wants the money. He wants the estate. And then notice Edmund, it wasn't enough what he already lied about. He goes on to say, when I dissuaded him from his intent and found him pite to do it, and that means, uh, pite means to, to set to do it, or like pite can also mean to pitch a tent. So, so he said, look, I tried to, I, I tried, I tried so hard, dad, to persuade him not to do this. And he said, uh, uh, but then, you know, he was so set to do it. And he said, with cursed speech, I threatened to discover him. He replied, thou unpossessing bastard, dost thou think if I would stand against thee with the reposal of any trust, virtue, or worth in thee, make thy wounds faithed? No, what I should deny as I would do, I, thou didst produce my very character. I turn it all to thy suggestion, plot, and damned practice, and thou must make a dullard of the world. And if they thought the prophets of my death were very pregnant and potential spirits to make thee seek it. And, and Gloucester is really, he's about ready to have a heart attack <laughs> to think that his son would be saying all these things. He says, oh, strange and fastened villain. Would he deny his letter, said he? I never got him. And so, so the thing is, Gloucester still believes this letter was written by his son. And it was Edmund that did the whole thing. And so, so then, then here's where, uh, in, in some ways, where the plot really starts to thicken because, uh, here's when Cornwall and, and Regan show up. And he says, uh, he goes on to say, uh, hark, the Duke's trumpets. I know not why he comes. All ports I am, I'll bar. The villain shall not escape. The Duke must grant me that. Besides, his picture I will send far and near, that all of the kingdom may have due note of him and of my land. Loyal and natural boy, I work the means to make you capable. So essentially what he's done, he's kicked Edgar out of the family. He's kicked him out of England. And now he's saying uh, to Edmund, you're now my natural son and you get everything. And that's what he wanted. He wanted the estate. But... <laughs> what uh, Edmund doesn't realize is someone else wants the estate too. And so this is where it really gets thick. And that's why Cornwall and Regan show up. And this is really horrendous for what's going on. But I, I, I've kind of, uh, in my notes, this is called the Lear and Gloucester family's internal wars because the families are at fight inside each other and they're going to soon be in fight at each other. And so... so uh, and, of course, that's where Cordelia is going to come in towards the end of the play. Now, Cornwall shows up. And, and uh, one, one thing everybody out there reading has to understand, Cornwall is the most evil guy in the whole play. I mean, he, he's a, he even beats Edmund. 
And uh, uh, Gloucester is going to find this out in a very, very, very sad way. He says, How now, my noble friend, since I came hither, which I can call but now, I have heard strange news. And then, you know, what is the strange news? You know, that's the thing. The strange news is what's going on with Gloucester and what's going on with the sun, you know. And they already know because Edmund's told Regan. He's told her everything. And Regan said, if it be true, all vengeance comes too short, which can pursue the offender. How does my lord? And Gloucester says, oh, madam, my old heart is cracked. It's cracked. And here's what Regan, you can see the plot. I mean, these people are so so evil and Shakespeare you know could could work this and write this to make us see it but she she says <clears throat> she goes on to say what did my father's godson seek your life he who my father named your edgar and so regan said what my father was his godson and now he seeks your life how does she know this well we know who told her he says uh, Gloucester says, oh, lady, lady, shame would have it hid. So, so he's really upset, you know, just to have to explain it. And Regan says, was he not companion with the riotous knights that ended up upon, upon, that rendered upon my father? So, so she says, is he one of the knights that was, you know, causing all the trouble for my sister? That's basically what she's saying. And Gloucester says, I know not, madam. Tis too bad, too bad. And and Edmund says, yes, madam. He was of that consort. Yeah, he was he was part of the knights. And then Regan says, then no marvel then, though he were ill affected, tis they have put him on the old man's death, to have the expense and waste of his revenues. I have this present evening from my sister been well informed of them, and with such cautions that if they come to sojourn at my house. I'll not be there. So if you really get that and understand that, what she's saying is, is uh, you know, that the knights and Lear want to take Gloucester's estate. That's what they're saying. It's not, it's not even near true. But you can see, they can see that the Gloucester is a little weak. You know, he doesn't really understand what's really going on. And that they're playing him already. You know, they want the estate. And, of course, uh, you know, if you've read ahead now, you know what what Cornwall and Regan are going to do to Gloucester. You know, they're going to pop his eyes out and make him uh, out, you know, have to be a beggar just as much as Lear is. So, so you can see that the, the families just do not have any respect for fathers. They don't have none. And so uh, Cornwall goes, says, Nor I assure thee, Regan, Eben and I hear that you have shown your father a childlike office. <laughs> so, so they're saying, "Oh, come on, Regan. Yeah, this is so sad. You were you were so childlike to your father." <laughs> so, so yeah, we're going to go back and read what Goneril said in a minute. <clears throat> Actually, Cornwall was saying that to Edmund, not Regan. He said, "No, nor I assure thee, Regan. Oh, maybe it is to both of them." Uh, but a childlike office, and, and of course, then Edmund says, it was my duty, sir. And Gloucester says, he did bewray his practice and receive this hurt, you see, striving to apprehend him. And Cornwall says, is he pursued? Aye, my good lord. 
And Cornwall says, if he be taken, he shall never more be feared of doing harm. Make your own purpose, how in my strength you please. For you, Edmund, whose virtue and obedience to this instant so much commend itself, you shall be ours. Natures of such deep trust we shall much need, you will first seize on. And so they're telling him, all right, you're in. You're going to make it. But Cornwall doesn't understand that his wife's having an affair with Edmund. You know, he thinks he's a great guy, so that guy's dense too. And then notice Edmund says, I shall serve you, sir, truly, however else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's serving himself of his wife. He said, for him, I thank your grace. And then Cornwall says, you know not why we came to visit you. And he said, no. He said, Reason. Then Regan says, thus out of season, threading dark-eyed night, occasions noble Gloucester of some prize, wherein we must have use of your advice. Our father hath writ, so hath our sister, of differences, which I best thought it fit to answer from our home. The several messengers from hence attend dispatch, our good old friend lay comforts to your bosom and bestow your needful counsel to our business, which craves the instant use. What Regan says basically is, you know, we said we need some advice on some matters. And uh, we really need to stay here. And, uh, um, you know, essentially, if you go back to what she had said on the, when I read to you previously, um, she she's saying that, uh, you know, on this speech where, she, where they're actually wanting to take the estate, she says that if they come to surgery in my house, I'll not be there. So so here, if Reagan really loved her father and she she understands that her sister kicked him out, you think she might help him. But she says, there's no way I want him to be home. That's why they really left. They don't they don't want him, uh, you know, um, at their house. Now, if we go back, if we can just go back to page 35 and uh, we go down to, to uh, let's say it's a little bit past line 330, we're talking to Oswald, is that, you know, Goneril is so mad. Um, if you remember, she kicked him out. She was only going to give him so many nights. And then if you remember that whole scene, it's really kind of a gross scene. But, but uh, you know, Lear calls down all the gods and makes her sterile. You know, that's what he thinks he's, he's doing. And so, uh, but anyway, she hates her father now. She does not want any part of him. And so, so, uh, they kick him out. And then Lear, he says, okay, well, I'm going to Regan's. So what she does, she gets her servant Oswald, who is also one of her lovers, by the way. And she says, have you written that letter to my sister? And he says, I, madam. And she says, take you some company and away to horse, inform her of my particular fear. And therefore, add unto her such reasons of your own as may compact it more. Get you gone and hasten your return. And uh, uh, Oswald exits. And then she says, No, no, my lord, this milky gentleness and course of yours, though I condemn not yet under pardon, you are much more a task for one of wisdom than praised for harmful mildness. She's saying that to her husband. She says, You big sissy, you know, you're just weak. You know, in other words, she's going to send Oswald to do her dirty business. She or she can't rely on her husband, and so so uh, that shows how much love uh, Goneril has for her husband and for her father. She wants she wants nothing to do with any of it. 
And so uh, uh, let's just go back now. Let's go back to page 43. We wanted to skip down now to Act 2, Scene 2. And so this is page 43. And it's essentially what you have here, now we've talked a lot about Kent uh, in the previous program, but uh, if, if you want to, my title for this scene is Kent versus Oswald. So so here Oswald shows up, and he said, Good gone to thee, friend, art you of this house? And it's Kent. He says, I. Now, he doesn't see Kent because Kent is... Um, you know he's 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 in uh, he's changed his hair he's changed his voice you know he's changed everything and uh, but Kent just hates Oswald <laughs> he just hates him and actually if you really read this scene as carefully as you should what we find out is Kent just hates him so bad he just goes after him Oswald really doesn't do anything bad to him in the scene he just hates him and so so uh, Kent knows who he is he says. Where may, we, where may we set our horses? He says, I the mire. Oswald, prithee, if thou lovest me, tell me. And he says, I love thee not. When then? I I care not for thee. And he said, and wait a second. Oswald just totally, he does, what, what do you mean? What, what did I do to you? He said, If I had thee in Lipsbury pinfold, I would make thee care for me. And he says, Why do you use me thus? I know thee not. He says, Fellow, I know thee. And Oswald says, what dost thou know me for? And then Kent, you know, goes off. He says, A knave, a rascal, an eater of broken meats, a base, proud, shallow, beggarly, three-suited, hundred-pound, filthy, worsted-stocking knave, a lily-livid, action-taking knave, a whoreson, glaze-gazing, super-serviceable, finical rogue, one-trunk-inheriting slave, one that wouldst be a bored in way of good service, and art nothing but the composition of a knave, beggar, coward, panda, and the son and heir of a mongrel bitch, one whom I will beat into clamorous whining if thou denied the least syllable of thy addition. Let's say this is the kind of a bad side of Kent. <laughs> you know, he just, he's just fully angry over what he saw, you know, back at the palace. Oswald says, Why, what a monstrous fellow art thou to rail on one that has neither known of thee or knows thee? And Kent says, What a brazen-faced varlet thou art to deny thou knowest me. Is it two days since I tripped up thy heels and beat thee before the king? So then Kent draws his sword. Draw, you rogue! For though it be night, yet the moon shines. I'll make a sop of the moonshine of you. Draw, you whoresome, cullenly barbermonger. Draw! So, so uh, again, I guess all of us have a good side, and then all of us have a bad side. <laughs> and Kent, Kent certainly has a bad side there. And then Oswald goes on to say, Away, I have nothing to do with you. And he says, Draw, you rascal! For you come with letters against the king. Take vanity, the puppet's part, against the royalty of her father. So he knows what's going on. He knows the letter's coming. Draw, you rogue! Or I'll so carbonado your shanks. Draw, you rascal! Come your ways! Oswald says, help, ho, murder, help. So, so Oswald is on the same plane as Edmund. I'm hurt. I'm being hurt. You know, and he says, Strike, you slave! Stand, rogue! Stand, you neat slave! Strike! And he beats him. And then, uh, uh, help, ho, murder, murder. And so then, all of a sudden, Edmund shows up, Cornwall shows up, Regan shows up, Gloucester, all the servants are there, 
And Edmund runs in there and says, Hal, now, what's the matter? He says, With you, good man boy, if you please, come. I'll flesh you. Come on, young master. And Gloucester says, Weapons, arms, what is the matter here? Keep peace upon your lives. He dies that strikes again. What is the matter? And, and Regan says, The messengers from our sister and the king. What is your difference? Speak. I am scarce in breath, my lord. And Kent says, No marvel. You have so bestirred your valor, you cowardly rascal. Nature disclaims in thee. A tailor made thee. You are a strange fellow. A tailor make a man? So Cornwall now doesn't know it's Kent. And so he's like, Well, well you're strange. And then he said, Aye, a tailor, sir. A stonecutter or a painter could not have made him so ill, though he had been but two hours at the trade. He says, Speak yet. How grew your quarrel? And then and Oswald says, The ancient ruffian, sir, whose life I have spared at the suit of his gray beard. So, so, so here, Oswald finally figures it out that it's Kent. And he sees his gray beard. You know, so that's, that part hasn't been taken off. And then Ken says, Thou whoresome Zed, thou unnecessary letter. My lord, if you will give me leave, I will tread this unbolted villain into mortar and daub the wall of a jakes with him. Spare my grey beard, you wagtail. And Cornwall says, Peace, sirrah, you beastly knave. You know no reverence. Yes, sir, but anger hath a privilege. And so that's where Shakespeare really brings out that, that Ken is really just angry over what's happened to Lear and what's happened back at the castle. And so so he, he's really, he feels like he has a right to be angry. And uh, and then, courts, then Cornwall says, why are you so angry? He says, That such a slave as this should wear a sword, who wears no honesty. Such smiling rogues as these, like rats, oft bite the holy cords a twain, which are too entrenched, tun loose, smooth every passion, that in the natures of their lords rebel, bring oil to fire, Snow to their colder moods, renege, affirm, and turn their halcyon beaks with every gale and vary of their masters, knowing naught like dogs, but following a plague upon your epileptic visage. Smile you my speeches, as I were a fool? Goose, if I had you upon Sarum Plain, I'd drive you cackling home to Camelot. And so, so uh, Kent is saying, you know, it's time to quit playing games. Carl says, what art thou mad, old fellow? How fell you, uh, Gloucester says, how fell you out, say that? Now, it's really funny. Gloucester and Kent, at the very beginning of the play, were good buddies. And he doesn't even know it's Kent. And so so you can see when when uh, everybody out there, well, I think what Shakespeare is trying to show is when evil begins to grow in families and grow among friends, they lose control. They lose control of their sense. They lose control of their love for each other. And they they uh, they can, and he shows in this play they can forget who, the, who each other look like, and of course this this is all about the play. But Kent says, "No contraries hold more antipathy than I and such a knave." Why dost thou call him knave? What is his fault? His countenance likes me not. No more perchance does mine, nor his, nor hers. Kent then says, "Sir, tis my occupation to be plain." I have seen better faces in my time than stands on any shoulder that I see before me at this instant. This is some fellow who, having been praised for bluntness, doth affect a saucy roughness and contains the garb quite from his nature. He cannot flatter. He, he, an honest mind and plain, he must speak truth, and they will take it. So if not, he's plain. These kind of knaves I know which in this plainness harbor more craft 
and more corrupter ends than any silly duckling observance that stretch their duties nicely. So essentially, Cornwall was saying, you know, people that tell the truth, it can be pretty evil too. And so, so uh, uh, again, uh, and the reason why I, I really want to do this play uh, right now is because this is happening all over this globe. It's happening in the United States. It's happening in England. It's happening in Israel. And uh, if you speak the truth, you know, the, uh, the other side is really going to go after you. They do not want the truth. They do not want the truth told. They don't want it heard. And uh, they want everyone to, to uh, follow their lies. Kent goes on to say, Sir, in good sooth, in sincere verity, under the allowance of your great aspect, whose influence like the wreath of radiant fire on flickering Phoebus' front. Cornwall says, what means by this? He said, To go out of my dialect which you discommend so much. I know, sir, that I am no flatterer. He that beguiled you in a plain accent was a plain knave, which for my part I will not be, though I should win your displeasure to entreat me to it. What was the offence you gave him? And Oswald says, I never gave him any. It pleased the king, his master, very late, to strike at me upon his misconstruction. And I'll, I'll just skip down from, from that. You can read that on your own. Kent says, None of these rogues and cowards, but Ajax is their fool. Cornwall says, Okay, fetch forth the stocks. You stubborn ancient knave, you reverent braggart, will teach you. So so then what do you have in the rest of this, this uh, little scene here is Cornwall and Regan make sure Kent is put in the stocks. And... What that is, really, I think they're beginning to figure out who this is. I mean, in, in the background. And essentially, to put... And now remember now, Kent is now a servant of the king. And to, to put a servant of the king in stocks without the king knowing is really shows incredible disrespect. And so, so essentially, this is what is going on. I, and if you go back to the very beginning of the scene, I said... Edmund has no respect. He doesn't have any respect. He doesn't have any respect for his father or for his servants. And Cornwall and Regan, they have no respect for anyone associated with Lear. And that's that's really what's going on here. And he says, now we're going to teach you. He says, sorry, I'm too old to learn. Call not your stocks for me. I serve the king on whose employment I was sent to you. You shall do small respect show to bold malice against the grace and person of my master, stocking his messenger. And notice Cornwall, fetch forth the stocks. As I have life and honor, they'll share, shall he sit till noon. Now listen to this. This is his wife. Regan says, till noon? Till night, my lord, and all night too. And so, so th- these daughters, these daughters that are so loving, they hate their father so bad she doesn't. She could care less about Kent being his servant. She says he's going to stay in there all night, and that's really to to uh, tick off her father. And Kent says, "Why, madam, if I were your father's dog, you should not use me so." And Reagan says, "Sir, being his knave, I will." And Cornwall says, "This is a fellow of the selfsame color our sister speaks of. Come, bring away the stalks." Stocks brought out, and so, so it's it's really, uh, you know, they're they're not going to back down. Now, Gloucester, he finally kind of wakes up here, 
And it's really interesting. He says, let me beseech your grace not to do so. His fault is much, and the good king, his master, will check him for it. And, and Gloucester really has the sense here. He said, look, okay, don't do this. It's the king's decision to do this. You're taking the part of the king. And he said, don't do it. Let the king check him for it. And he goes on to say, your purpose, low correction, is such as basest and contemptest wretches. It's for basest and contemptest wretches, for pilferings and most common trespasses are punished with. The king, his master, needs take it ill that he so slightly valued in his messenger should have him thus restrained. And Cornwall says, well, I'll answer that. And then Regan says, my sister may receive it much more worse to have her gentleman abused, assaulted, for following her affairs, put in his legs. <laughs> and he says, Kent is put in the stock. So, so no one wants to listen uh, to, Glo- to Gloucester. And they, they put him in the stocks. And Cornwall says, come, my lord, away. And they exit with Gloucester and with Kent. And so, so then uh, Gloucester says, I'm sorry for thee, friend. Tis the duke's pleasure, whose disposition all the world well knows will not be robbed nor stopped. I'll entreat for thee. And he says, Pray do not, sir. I have watched and travelled hard. Sometime I shall sleep out, the rest I'll whistle. A good man's fortunes may grow out at heels. Give you good morrow. And so Gloucester says, The duke's to blame in this. Twill be ill taken. And so so uh, essentially Gloucester has some sense there. He said, Look, uh, the duke's not going to fare well with this. You know, but poor Gloucester doesn't even know what's what's going to happen to him. And then the king says, Good king, that I must approve the common saw. Thou out of heaven's benediction comes to the warm sun. Approach, thou beacon, to this underglobe, that by thy comfortable beams I may peruse this letter. Nothing almost sees miracles but misery. I notice from Cordelia. So in some ways, for everybody out there listening, is, is Kent is not upset to be put in the stocks. Because he's received a letter from Cordelia. And uh, Cordelia has information that civil war is starting in England. And so she has an army, you know, uh, behind her from France. And, uh, you know, her husband, the king of France, is willing to help England here. And so uh, uh, he, he says, But misery, I notice from Cordelia who hath most fortunately been informed of my obscured course, and shall find time from this enormous state to give losses their remedies. All weary and overwatched, take vantage, heavy eyes, not to behold this shameful lodging. Fortune, good night, smile once more, turn thy wheel. And then, then uh, you know, he falls asleep. And so, so in some, in some ways... I, th- I think Shakespeare has a great balance. There's the evil things, and then there's some good things can even come out of the evil. And so, so we don't want to uh, kind of overdo, you know, you know everything. Um, one of the things that that uh, that I think is uh, you know really interesting with all of this is that that um, so much of it. I mean, Shakespeare wrote this in the 1600s, and so much of it is so true today. You know, when the government goes bad, it's you could you could experience this you know all over again, and so so it's a 
to, to me, it's, it's really, really quite fascinating. Here's one of the things that, that I can just add a little bit to. Um, this is from, from the Spark Notes. And uh, it, it's always helpful, I think, uh, especially if you're reading things alone and you don't understand it. I don't never necessarily cover it on the radio right away. You can still get a lot of good information. But um, uh, essentially, what, what I call this whole section of the play is the gathering of the evil ones at Gloucester's Castle. Because everything seems to, to, to go there. Um, it's essentially, what we have to to realize is Edmund was just perfectly delighted to hear of Cornwall, Cornwall's visit. He says, uh, this is from the Spark Notes, realizing that he can make use of him in his scheme to get rid of Edgar. Um, so, so you know, I think we already talked a little bit about that, but you have to understand that is Edmund is playing everybody. That's what's, that's the, the, the truth of the whole matter. It says, Edmund calls Edgar out of his hiding place and tells him that Cornwall is angry with him for being on Albany's side of their disagreement. And so there, there's a family breakdown and, uh, you know, uh, Edmund is blaming Edgar already saying, yeah, he's, 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 uh, you know, he's, he's not on your side, you know. Uh, so it says, Edgar has no idea what Edmund is talking about. Edmund tells Edgar further that Gloucester has discovered his hiding place and that he should be, he ought to flee the house immediately under cover of night. And of course, uh, we've, you've read that in the play. We've read that to you today. So, uh, essentially then the unhappy Gloucester praises Edmund and vows to pursue Edgar. And, uh, he sent his men out to search for him. So uh, another little bit of bit here says Edmund's clever scheming to get rid of Edgar shows his cunning and his immorality. His ability to manipulate people calls to mind arguably the greatest of Shakespeare's villains, Iago from Othello. And it is it is interesting for all of you out there if you if you look at some of the top leaders in this country, they have an incredible ability to manipulate people. That's what we're seeing, and there's there's uh, again I don't want to get into to a lot of politics, I don't want to name names, but we have to wake up and see that that uh, so many things going on in this country, it's it's all there to manipulate the minds of the of the general public, and you know it it can wear you down, it can be weary. Um, and it can, you know, drive you crazy. But the, the thing is, what we all have to do is find out who the people are that are actually telling us the truth. And there are so many people know now that the, the news media is not telling the truth. And there, there are a lot of people now that also recognize government officials are not telling us the truth. But we have to realize there are people out there that will tell you the truth. And those are the ones that, uh, that they're the ones that are getting thrown into prison. They're the ones that are getting thrown into the stocks, uh, to, if we want to put it that way. Um, again, this, uh, from, uh, uh, the, the notes on, online it says Gloss's rejection of Edgar parallels Lear's rejection of Cordelia. And so, so, you have to see in this play that, that Shakespeare is dealing with two families and they mirror each other. There's a, there's a mirror between them and they, they're, the, the dads or the heads of the families are making the same mistakes. 
and it takes them to suffer. They really have to go through this terrible suffering. And uh, it looks like we're going to get into um, what happens with uh, Gloucester in the next the next uh, program. Uh, I don't have really time to cover that today, but but essentially, um, you know, they they have to suffer. Lear has to suffer. Um, uh, in some ways, Kent suffers seeing what's happening. Um, we we know that Gloucester is going to suffer horribly, and it's 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 going to be uh, one of the things that there there has to be even hope today. And I think I think Shakespeare intends that there's there's actually hope, in the sense that that uh, essentially Edgar is going to come back and help his father, and eventually Cordelia is going to come back and help her father. Now the play does not end on a happy note, but there still is the hope there if you want to see it, and uh, uh, you know uh, that's what we all have to work on too is that that uh, you know things are going to change. And uh, those of us that are, are uh, let's say, more spiritually oriented, we believe God is going to make that change. And it's, it's going to uh, get better for a while. It's going to get worse again for a while. But then it's going to be perfect for a long time. And so, so uh, um, you know, we, we have to learn to develop that. Don't get weary. Don't get you know, worn down. Don't watch the news all the time. <laughs> you know, Watch it, you know, go to your best news sources. And, uh, of course, those of us here at, at uh, kpcg.fm, we know where the best sources are. You know, you have Mr. Stephen Flurry's Trumpet Daily. We've got the Trumpet Magazine. And those are all offered to you for free. And uh, there you will get the truth. There you will get the hope. There you will get the excitement for what's coming. Okay, well, one, one other little thing. We still have a few minutes here. It says, uh, it is somewhat difficult to know what make what to make of Kent's attack on Oswald. Oswald's eagerness to serve the treacherous Goneril in Act 1, Scene 4 has established him as one of the play's minor villains. But Kent's barrage of insults and subsequent physical attack on Oswald are clearly unprovoked. Oswald's failure to fight back may be interpreted as cowardice but one can also interpret as Oswald, what as Oswald does, he says that he chooses not to attack Kent because of Kent's gray beard. At nearly fifty, Kent is an old man, and thus no longer suited for fighting. Kent's attack seems to be rooted in his anger at Goneril's treatment of Lear. Anger hath a privilege, is the excuse that he gives. Cornwall and Regan and his rage at the hypocrisy surrounding Lear's betrayal by his daughter. So so that's what's driving him crazy. And uh, uh, Kent, uh, again, very loyal, but we'll see at the very end of the play that uh, he loves, he deeply loves King Lear. And uh, he is loyal, loyal to, to death. And we'll talk about that more as we get closer to the end. Well, that's about all the time we have for today's program. Now, next time, we'll continue with Act 2 and hopefully uh, maybe make a little bit of a dent in Act 3. So please write me any comments you may have to comments at kpcg.fm. You can also comment on my Twitter page, Shakespeare's World Education. And uh, one of the things, uh, right now we're in, in summer break, 
Uh, we're also, uh, we've had a major minister's conference here the, the last week or so. We're going to be going into a uh, summer education program. We also have one more Celtic throne program. It's going to be busy, busy, busy. So, uh, so uh, again, uh, we're going to try, uh, Dan is really helping me try to get these programs up and going and really moving because you know what? School's going to start again really soon. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to hit me like a brick. Bam. All right. So again, uh, send me any comments. I really appreciate it. And uh, I just want to thank you for joining me next time as we advance our royal education. You've been listening to Shakespeare's Royal Education on Trumpet Radio. 101.3 KPCG, streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.